Difficult situations tests one's resolve, don't they? You can think on an individual scale, let's say recent news. Uh, take Tiger Woods' attempt to recover his career after such public immorality and then excruciating back pain, if you've been following golf over the last couple of weeks. It tests his resolve. It tests his beliefs and his commitments. What is he going to live for? And then on a much larger scale, take the police shooting of an unarmed Michael Brown in a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri. This incident and then the rioting that's followed is testing the city's commitment presently, right now, even last night, and testing the convictions of all the parties involved about how to go about upholding justice or what justice even is. Throughout life, we find ourselves in situations that challenge us and test us and hopefully, by God's grace, refine us. And that's what's going on in Abraham's life. God was putting his faith and his obedience to the test. And we've been walking through the book of Genesis and we are looking at the life of Abraham. And we know that God had brought Abraham some very important promises. Now, he didn't deserve them. But God brought his grace to him nevertheless. And God singled him out out of of everybody on the planet. And he said, I will bless you. I'm going to bless you with land. I'm going to bless you with many people coming from your line. And he says, in you, one of your offspring will be a blessing to the nations. And it says that Abraham believed and God credited it to him as righteousness. He was saved. He was justified on his belief. And Abraham is the so-called father of the Christian faith, if you will. So the New Testament, he hold, the New Testament holds him out as a person worth following. And then today, even though he was tested, still he believed, still he obeyed. And so he is an example for us today in his belief, in his faith. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis means origins or beginnings. So here we see the beginnings of all things, the beginnings of the universe as God created them. We see the patriarchs or the fathers of the faith, Abraham being the first of them. And then what we read of today is by far Abraham's biggest challenge that God had ever brought to him. Before we get into the chapter, it's important to note that God does indeed test people. He does test people, but that does not mean we ought not be confused to think that God, therefore, tempts us as in he's sort of luring us out and causing us to fail. He's making us sin that the Bible says nothing of the sort. In fact, it says that God does no such thing, but he does bring situations our way in order that our faith might be tested and strengthened and then by God's grace refined over time. And that's what God is doing here in Uh, Genesis chapter two with Abraham. God here has here, as always, has called his people to obedience. This is simply a part of living life underneath the authority of the rightful ruler. The call to obedience, to obey the one with all authority, to be in a relationship with the king includes loving his just and perfect laws. And submitting to God's authority is exactly what Adam and Eve chose not to do. That is the first people, Adam and Eve. 
But we've seen that God is absolutely determined by his grace and for his glory to remake a people for himself. People who are going to reflect and display his image and his glory to the creation. People who love him and live like him and live for him. And as God remakes his people, he tests them. If you guys recall in Genesis chapter 12, go ahead and turn there again. We've looked at this verse plenty of times. Genesis chapter 12. Um, Abraham's saga begins in 12 verses 1 to 3. And it begins with a call, really a call to obedience. And God draws near to Abraham, this pagan man from a pagan land, and he gives them these promises. It's a call to obedience. He says there, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, leave, go from your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. This is a call to radical obedience. Leave everything and trust, depend on God, even though he has no idea where God will bring him. And he says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So look at that. I mean, his call begins with a call to obedience. Now go back to chapter 22. Here we find a very similar call. Uh, yet another call to obedience. 22 verses 1 to 2 it says there after these things so a long time of has already passed 35 years in fact from the time of genesis 12 to now after these things god tested abraham and said to him abraham and he said here i am he said take your son your only son whom you love and go to the land of moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which i shall tell you this here is a test. Now, I'm going to get to the elephant in the room test. The fact that he is called to sacrifice his son. We're going to consider that later on. But first, let's just note that this is, in fact, a test. God tested Abraham. And note, though, Abraham's obedience. He says, here I am. He hasn't even heard the test yet, but it seems like he, he jumps to the opportunity. Here I am. What is this thing that you're going to call me to do? He hasn't even heard the test yet, but nevertheless, he jumps to his feet. And it seems that over the course of time, you know how it says there that after these things, here his faith is maturing. It has, in fact, matured over the course of 35 years. I mean, isn't that encouraging to us, especially some of you? Members who might consider yourself older in age. Isn't it encouraging that at 115 years, God is still maturing Abraham's faith and causing him to live by faith in God and not by sight. Even at 115 years old, God is intent, determined to refine his people's faith. You know, one wonders what thoughts might have raced through Abraham's mind here as God called him to do the seemingly impossible sacrifice Isaac. And this would be incredibly difficult. But God knows exactly what test will help Abraham, just as God knew what test exactly would help the Israelites later on. So in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, Moses reminds Israel about um, their God-ordained task as they wandered through the desert. And he says, 
Moses or God speaking through Moses says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you. Testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. So here in in this test in Deuteronomy where the Israelites are wandering through the desert, that test specifically was to see to determine what was in their hearts, whether or not they would actually hear and heed the words of God. Same thing is going on here. God had given him the promise 35 years ago. God had promised that he would have many offspring. The problem, again, was that the, the fulfillment of the promise hinged on the very one thing that they could not do. They were a barren couple. So from the get-go, they're forced to rely on the words of God and the power of God that he is able to do these things that are seemingly impossible. But unfortunately, after you know, knowing that they can't have children, and after a while goes by, they come up with a plan for Abraham to sleep with Sarah's maidservant, and that leads to the birth of Ishmael through Hagar. God then draws near to Abraham and Sarah and promises that they will have a son. And Abraham says, what? Surely Ishmael is a good candidate. He's plenty good. And 25 years after the promise is given, God finally fulfills his initial promise. And he gives Abraham and Sarah a child. That is Isaac. In Genesis chapter 21, there we saw last week, we're able to breathe a sigh of relief after the many ups and the many downs of Abraham and Sarah's faith. After waiting all of that time, the child of the promise is finally here. But in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 22, the very next chapter, God wants Abraham to give up the very promised child. 35 years pass. Well, 25 years from the promise, God gives Abraham and Sarah the child. And in the very next chapter, he says, give him up. It's kind of strange, isn't it? God, by his word, says, I'm going to give you a child. And from that child will come multiple offspring, offspring as numerous as the sand on the shores and the stars in the sky. And in the very next chapter, he says, I want you to give him up. The promise comes by the word and then the test comes by the word. That's something that we need to reconcile here. And we're going to at the very end. What do we make of God's word? But as he received this test, I think he would have said, you know, are you nuts? This is the child of the promise. This is the child that we've been waiting for for 35 years and our bodies are old. And now you want us to give him up. And just in the last chapter, he was called to give up Ishmael. And that was difficult for Abraham to let him go. He is the one who had taken care of him for 16 years into the desert and he obeys God. You know what God is testing here? God is testing Abraham's loves. God is testing Abraham's loves. Whether Abraham's love for his child supersedes that of his love for the Lord. God tests whether he loves God's gift more than God himself. He's banking on this promised child. Do I love God's gift more than the giver of the gift? An equivalent today is, let's say, loving the idea of heaven. So life eternal. 
Now, there are a lot of misconceptions about heaven. I went to one church one day, and uh, they talked about how heaven is like, they rightly said heaven is like, uh, you know, the mansion, and we get many, we get the room. There are many rooms in my father's mansion. They also said that heaven is like a place where you get to throw the football around in this praise song. So to some people, they think that the, the blessings that God gives, in this case, let's say freedom to do whatever I want. In that case, it's play, throw the football around. Um, or some people think, you know, hey, I got to see my family again. That certainly is a blessing. Live eternally. That certainly is a blessing. But, you know, sometimes we want to love the gift more than the giver of the gift. Another one, let's say, is loving the idea of escaping eternal judgment. You love the idea of escaping hell, but yet you don't love the Lord who saves you from it. Oftentimes people ask the question, you know, would you want to be in heaven if Jesus were not there? And that gets to the idea of what we love. If I can have heaven and, oh, well, you know, Jesus is to the side, and we're probably pressing on something here similar to this test. Do I love the gift more than the giver? Will Abraham treasure God, his word, and his will? Or will he be ruled by his own will and desires? Now, verses 3 through 10 answer this question. Whose will is Abraham ultimately going to live for? And by God's grace, we see that Abraham has total obedience. Total obedience. He treasures God and his word, and he gives himself to God. Look, go ahead and look there, verses 3 to 10. So Abraham rose, note the time, early in the morning, he saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from, from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, once again, we're going to get to the elephant test in the room. But we want we it would serve us well to note Abraham's obedience here, because this chapter highlights without doubt the obedience of Abraham. Faith made evident through obedience. And you note first that his obedience is immediate. Right? He rises up there in verse 3, early in the morning. And then you read the verbs, you know, how the stories move forward. He saddled his donkey. He took his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood of the burnt offering, and he arose and he went, even though God hadn't revealed to him yet where to go. I mean, here, this is, this is obedience here. One thing right after the, uh, another, right 
after the call of God. So in the face of the call, Abraham's obedience is immediate. Not only is it immediate, it is determined. Do you guys notice how long this journey took? There in verse 4 says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. You guys ever debate obedience? You guys know what it's like to debate obedience? There have been times where the debate, at least in my own struggle with sin, lasts for one minute, but that one minute seems like an eternity. Literally having seemingly the Spirit witnessing to me about what righteousness looks like and what it looks like to pursue it and then feeling very much so what it looks like to have the devil right on my other shoulder telling me that that is superior to following righteousness and obeying Jesus. Whether And that has happened in my own life. One minute, ten minutes, one hour, two days. For Abraham's case, three days. And we want to know, I want to know how Abraham felt in the midst of that journey. He walks with his son, with his other men, knowing that God has called him to sacrifice his only son, the son whom he loves. What what was his disposition? You know, fascinatingly, um, scripture is silent about how Abraham felt. I mean, it's interesting. It's silent about how, what Isaac thought and felt. Largely. But what is highlighted is Abraham and his son's obedience to the word of God. I know that if I was in Abraham's shoes, the journey must have been a harrowing one. To think about the preparations, for example, in verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering And laid it on Isaac, his son. That is, after he had cut it, he gave it to his own son to carry. I mean, Isaac is carrying the very wood that he, in a handful of verses, would be lying on as he obeys his father. And then Abraham takes in his hand the the fire and the knife that he knows God has called him to use to sacrifice his son. And it says that they went, both of them together. Both of them together. I mean, you can see their backs as they're walking. You can imagine watching their backs as they hike up Mount Moriah, both of them together. But Abraham, we would assume, is thinking that only one of us is going to return. And then somewhere along the path, Isaac asked this innocent question. Verse 7, I see the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb, Dad? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then you have this refrain again. So they went both of them together. A man like that has to be determined in his obedience. To listen to the words of God and to do what he has called him to do, even in the seemingly impossible So Abraham's obedience is immediate, it's determined, but it's also complete. Abraham's obedience is complete. Look there in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. Again, it doesn't talk about how Isaac, you know, fought him off or disobeyed or had ran away. 
by, by all accounts here, we should just naturally assume that Isaac was obedient. But he was already a teenager at this point in time. If he's able to carry all that wood up the mountain, he's able to fight off his father, who's 115 years old. And Isaac is laid on top of the wood. Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. For now, I want to look at these characteristics. We're looking at them now. We want to apply it to our lives here. Immediate, determined, complete. So think about your last week as you've struggled with whatever it is that you personally struggle with. In this last week, when you have struggled, maybe even last night, how would you describe your obedience? What words would you use to describe your own obedience? Or what words would a third party who's looking at you fight against your sinful temptations? What words would they use to describe your obedience? Think about the where's and the when's that God calls you to obedience. Now, let me just say the where and when of Abraham's call was absolutely unique, absolutely unique. Once in a lifetime, not only once in a lifetime, but once in God's plan of redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation, it happens once. And it happens once because God is building a people that will come from Abraham and he wants all of those people. So if you're here as a Christian, you are part of those people. You share the same faith as Abraham. He wants all of those people to have that faith. That faith that loves God more than any good gift that God could possibly give. And in God's providence, he gives Abraham that test that we might all look and learn from. We're not going to experience this test. It happens once in redemptive history, Genesis to Revelation. So if you feel like you're getting a call to sacrifice your son, you need to come speak to a pastor immediately. Once in God's plan of salvation, God is testing a unique man. In a unique time, Abraham, who stands as the father of the faith forever. So where and when are you called to walk in righteousness? That's a very realistic test for us. Where and when are you called to resist sin? Where and when are you called to live for the glory of Christ's name? And how would you describe your obedience? How would an onlooker describe your obedience? So for older members, when God calls you to entrust your wayward children, maybe your wayward grandchildren, when God calls you to entrust them to him and for you to give up control, but to rely on the providence and provision of God, how would you describe your obedience? Or maybe as he calls you to entrust your very health to him and to hope in God who has power to raise the dead. How about for some of you? What about your, when God calls you to resist sexual temptation and to pursue sexual purity? When you're wrestling with your desires for sexual immorality and you know the intensity of those desires How would someone describe your obedience last night or over the weekend? How about when God calls you to live for his great name and not your own, let's say, in the workplace? And that requires you to actually speak about Jesus. 
That actually requires you to take a stand. And you know that if you do, you give up a little bit of that reputation. You know that maybe your boss isn't going to look on great favor on you. I used to work at 24-Hour Fitness, and uh, and this was in Costa Mesa, so closer to the coast. And, um, you know, there's a lot of temptation there. There's people working out who are basically half-naked, men and women. And so I used to, you know, I'm speaking with the guy trainers there, and they would literally just stop and just look. And I would have nothing to do with those conversations. Instead, I might try and change the topic, or if I would see them regularly, I'd talk about what they did over the weekend, and I'd talk to them about how I went to church. And then eventually, you know, in the beginning, they would talk to me about these things, about the girls, right, and get me, get my opinion. I wouldn't give it to them. But they would ask me those types of questions. But then eventually, very quickly, they stopped asking me to do a whole lot of things. They stopped asking me to hang out. They even stopped basically talking to me during work hours, at least when it came to uh, superficial things. And that was the price I was paying. I was losing my reputation with my coworkers in an effort to stand boldly before God and to have God look, I would hope and pray, pleasingly upon me as I represent his great name. How is your obedience? At times, maybe a little slow. Maybe even a little resistant. Maybe a little bit waffling instead of determined. Maybe unfinished or simply incomplete instead of complete. The great and wonderful things, guys, is that when your obedience is slow, when it is waffling and when it is incomplete, you have found something that in that moment is superior to God. And your love for that thing is greater in that moment than your love for God. The wonderful thing is that God has revealed to us in that process that we have yet to submit the object of our love to God and even our very love itself to the Lord. In this case, Genesis chapter 22, God was testing Abraham to see if the ultimate object of his love was Isaac or if it was God himself. God was testing Abraham to see if he would submit both the object of his love, namely Isaac, and his love itself to the lordship of God. That's why this is emphasized here. God tells him, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and you give him back to me. If you're visiting with us today and you know yourself not to follow Jesus, I think what this presupposition here that you're hearing, this basic assumption, is that everything, according to the Christian's understanding, ought to be submitted to the Lordship of God. The Bible says that everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is the only one worthy of our allegiance and all of our obedience, total obedience, more worthy than your very own self. That's what's going on here. Is Abraham was to trust God and to take his son and to offer him up on Mount Moriah. He's basically saying, will you submit everything you have to me? The Bible says that he has created us all, and so therefore he is over us all. Like a good king is over his kingdom. He's over everyone, and he gives people, he draws the boundaries in which the people are to live and play and love 
The problem is, is that many have gone the way of Adam and Eve and have rejected God's rule, rejected God's uh, laws, and have opted to make their own laws. They live in autonomy, or at least this fiction of autonomy, that they are by themselves rulers of their own kingdom. And in so doing, they topple over the kingdom of God, if that were even possible. And that, my friends, is sin. And, it, and the punishment for sin, the consequence of sin, the Bible says, is punishment, even eternal punishment. So as this is going on here with Abraham, God calling Abraham to submit everything he has to the Lord, the sovereign one. As Abraham lays down the wood, as Abraham lays Isaac on top of it, he grabs the dagger to sacrifice his son. And then we see what happens in verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So right at the very last moment. God intervenes to stop Abraham from doing the very thing that God called him to do. Don't do a single thing to the boy for now. I know he says, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son. Instead, you have given him to me. So we get the promise, right? The promise of, I mean, sorry, the purpose of the test is made explicit. God wants to know if Abraham fears God. What does it mean in this context to fear God? Well, here it looks exactly like obeying God's voice listening to god because god's the one who told him to not withhold his son from him so here this is this is a fear of god that doesn't lead abraham to cower in the corner this is a fear of god that leads abraham to obey to recognize that god is a sovereign one over all things just as genesis says that god is the creator of all things the provider of all for everything and the sustainer of everything and the god who loves to bless his people his people who follow him but god who also has consequences for those who reject him. Abraham's total obedience displays a necessary fear of God for the people of God. This is undergirded by a conviction that God is all of the things that scripture says he is. And he's going after whether or not he will obey his commands. Right? Because if, if there's a king and you acknowledge, you acknowledge his kingship, you're going to listen to his commands and you're not only going to listen to them but you're going to embrace them you're going to trust them you're going to acknowledge that those they are good just as much just as uh, good as god is so are his commands so in deuteronomy 8 2 to repeat that again it says god tests to see what is in the heart to see whether or not you will obey my commands here the test is completed faith is made evidence evident through his obedience abraham did indeed listen and obey the commands of god immediately determinedly completely and in the midst of this test god wants to show him that he is not only the creator not only the sustainer but he wants to remind him again that the fact is that god is the great provider look there in 13 and 14 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, don't miss that, okay? Do not miss that. God provided a ram instead of his son. So here God provides a substitute sacrifice to this guy who would become the father of the faith. And so everyone, us included, look back to Abraham who stands as the father of the faith and recognize that Abraham is amazed that God provided a substitute to stand in his son's stead. Imagine Isaac, for example, his his amazement as you know, he's the one who, who asked the question earlier. I see the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb? And then imagine Abraham's surprise when he saw the ram. What was his answer and declaration to Isaac's question? He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the offering. God will provide Abraham, it seems that he, he speaks more than he even realizes right there when he says God will provide. But it's an, it's an entirely fitting name, right? He, he, he names this place, the Lord will provide. It's an entirely fitting name because Abraham's obedience was rooted in the trustworthiness of God. That he means what he says, that he fulfills all of his promises. And just as the Lord provided the promise... That is the initial promise. Just as the Lord provided the, the son, the answer to the promise, Abraham believed that the Lord would continue to provide the answer even though the Lord called him to sacrifice his son. He knew the character of God. He believed that God meant what he had said. In Isaac, your offspring will be named. He believed that. Which is why when he receives the call and the test of obedience to offer up this very Isaac, he says simply, yes, I'll go ahead and do that because he believed that God is faithful. He believed in the character of God. Might have there been some things that he didn't quite grasp about God, about why he had called him to do these certain things. Maybe. But it seems that Abraham here, he's just entrusting all those unanswered things to the providence and sovereignty of God. And yet he continues moving in faithful obedience. Why? It's not because he can pull up his bootstraps of faith and continue walking. It's because he knows that God is God. He trusted and he entrusted his past. That is his clinging to the hopes and promises. He entrusted the present as he sees Isaac right here. And he also entrusted the future to God himself. You know, the New Testament actually says, it gives us an answer about what Abraham might have been thinking in this whole ordeal. What got him to walk in this obedience? Immediate, total obedience. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. I mean, this, this verse is incredibly amazing here. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. So this is what we want to do. We want to see how Scripture addresses Scripture. How Scripture interprets Scripture as opposed to sort of making up our own understanding about what Isaac, what Abraham might have been thinking as he went about fulfilling this promise or fulfilling his uh, call. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. It says... About this incident, 
It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So in other words, he's obeying the call of God as he knew that it was through Isaac his offspring would, would be named. And the question is, why? Why would he go about doing this? Why would he offer up his son? Why does he is about to sacrifice him? 19 says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, speaking, he did receive him back. You see that there? He and his son are able to walk up Mount Moriah to the place of sacrifice. He's, he's willing to go this three-day journey just to give up his son his, the promised son, the one in whom all of his hope lies on. Why is that? Because he considered that God was able to raise him up. He considered that God was going to be faithful, not considering as in like maybe God is, but knowing that God is. His obedience and fulfilling God's test stemmed from the knowledge and conviction that God was going to do exactly as he promised. That nothing was going to jeopardize God's will and plan to bless the world through Abraham's seed. Absolutely nothing. So if he calls me to sacrifice my son, I will obey. And in trust and faith, with confidence, he moves forward. So just as God provided the promises, just as God gave the test, so Abraham knew that God was going to provide some solution. Even in the midst of the call to sacrifice his sons. Figuratively speaking, Abraham receives him back. God provides this lamb. God knows that Abraham is willing to obey. He did, in fact, obey. The Lord will provide. Can you imagine Moses? Uh, Genesis was written around the time of the Exodus. Let's say 1500 BC. Imagine the Israelites thinking... As they were leaving Egypt. And God gives them the law to make sacrifices. Here Mount Moriah stands as a testament to the character of God. Rooting our faith. Strengthening our faith. Moses is writing this centuries after Abraham and Isaac even went up to the mount. But you look there in 14. Mount Moriah stands as a testament of the character of God. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide as it is said to this day. For centuries, as it was said to that day, it was passed on that the Lord certainly will provide. And so the Israelites who were shaking in their boots, wandering through the desert, wanting to go back to Egypt, should have been reminded of the fact that the Lord will provide. Abraham learns here that God is the great provider. What a glorious lesson it would have been for his faith. Learning that God takes care of all of his needs, certainly not in the immediate. I mean, he had to wait 25 years to get the son, 35 years before he's called uh, to sacrifice him. This is the God who makes promises and the God who keeps them. And so that's what gives him the boldness by the power of the spirit to continue to walk in faith. What's even more encouraging for us is that it isn't only in Moses's day that that mountain stood as a testament to the character of God, Mount Moriah. 
Mount Moriah is the mountain where Solomon would eventually build his temple. That is Jerusalem. So for centuries after Solomon had built his temple, lamb after lamb after lamb would be sacrificed. And each one of them would point to point to by God's intention. Each every single one of them was to point to the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That is Jesus Christ. The Lord will provide. And what goes on here between Abraham and Isaac typifies what God does in Jesus Christ. Just as God called Abraham to give up his only son whom you love. So God in sending Jesus gave up his son of whom the father says, this is my beloved son whom I love. Just as Abraham did not withhold his son Isaac, so God, according to Romans 8.32 says, did not withhold his own son, but instead gave him up for us all. Just as Abraham and Isaac knew without a doubt that God was the provider. Friends, we know the exact same. That in Jesus Christ, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, God has provided for us on the mountain of crucifixion. Again, if you find yourself here and you know yourself not to be a believer, all scripture points to and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Lord. You know, once again, all things are made through him. All things are made for him. So this story of Abraham stands as a call to you. Like Abraham, he submitted all of his life to the Lord of the universe. The question is, are you doing that? Do you submit all of your life, all of the blessings God has given you, your life, your children, your family, your relationships, your job, your money, your comfort, your security, your influence? You submit all of those things to the lordship of God, knowing that he owns them all. This story of Abraham calls us to do just that. And in Jesus Christ, he sends his son to be the provision for you who have sinned against God and earned from yourself a just condemnation. He provides for us where we should have died in God's justice. In God's mercy, he sends us Christ to bear our punishment, to bear the sin and the wrath that we deserve. And he takes that all where we deserve the the judgment. God pours that out on not us, but on Christ so that all those who would have the faith of Abraham to trust and acknowledge that God is the creator, the sustainer, the provider of all things of all life. And he owes he owns us all. Your allegiance and your obedience, if you turn from your sin, God says you will be saved. Christ there provides for sinners through his shed blood. Christian, our faith is being tested as well. We will, will we love God's gift more than the giver? Now, again, we should all look at our lives and recognize that there are times when our faith is wavering, just like Abraham's did in previous chapters. But don't be discouraged if you find yourself being tested And sometimes fighting, oftentimes fighting to continue to walk in obedience. Don't think that just because you're being tested means that you will not receive the promises. If you are a Christian and if you are being tested, you should be encouraged, actually. Because enduring these tests in obedience by faith is the means by which God confirms and gives again the promises of eternal life. 
Of course, Abraham showed here that he did not love the promises more than God. And when his love to the father is proven through his obedience, God effusively reconfirms his promises to Abraham. He effusively reconfirms his promises to Abraham. Once I know, son, Abraham, that you love me more than my gifts, I give you more gifts. That is incredible that that's how our God works. Obedience by faith is a pathway to the promises. Look there in 15 to 19. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, there's nobody else I can swear by because I'm the greatest one there is. By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Why is that? Because you have obeyed my voice. Because you have done this. Because you've shown that you're willing to obey me, even the most difficult of circumstances. Because you have, you have shown that you love me more than my gifts. I shower my gifts on you. That is incredible that that's how our God works. You want eternal promises? I give them to you. I give you all of my eternal blessings. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring. I will establish a kingdom on you. And one from your line will be a blessing because you have obeyed my voice. This episode in Abraham's life shows us very clearly what is primary to God. He calls his people to obedience, and that is, in fact, an expectation. And this obedience is to manifest itself in loving God with our hearts and trusting him at his word. But this episode also shows us the immensity of the goodness of God as he lavishes his promises once again on Abraham. So if you're struggling right now, you feel like your faith looks more like Abraham's when he's basically giving away Sarah to the other nations. If you feel like that right now, brothers and sisters, let Abraham stand as a reminder to you that your God will shower blessings on you in your obedience. He will not withhold anything from you. And that's exactly what Romans 8.32 says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He doesn't withhold Jesus from us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what are you hoping in, in the midst of your tests, in the midst of your trials, when you feel like things are just slipping away from you? Brothers and sisters, hold on to the character of God who is faithful. As we walk our walk of faith and obedience, loving Jesus and living for him, um, it is okay to let the promises of God motivate you. Some people might say, okay, well, the promises of God I don't touch because I'm not supposed to love them more than God. That's true, but that doesn't mean that they aren't supposed to motivate you towards obedience and in your walk of faith. They are only insofar as they are subordinated to God himself. Love the promises. Love God even more, the giver of them. Listen to these promises. James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. You guys count yourselves as blessed. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, 
he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You guys hoping in your crown of life in the midst of your struggles? First Peter 1 5, you have been you've been born. You, God caused you to be born into a inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, preserved for you. I have this much of my inheritance reserved for you, but you must first walk the walk of faith. Paul talks about receiving a crown that will last forever, eternally enduring John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So I hope you guys don't think that the promises should not be valued or cherished or hoped for. They are. And you know who values them most? If you guys ever been parents, you know that oftentimes you value the gifts that you buy for your children the most. You cherish them the most and you cherish... The future joy that your children are going to experience when you give them these beautiful gifts. Imagine being that father who buys everything for his children and he eagerly awaits the days for when he's going to give that beautiful gift to his child. He wants his children to receive it. He wants his children to enjoy it, but at his designated time and for his good purposes, which necessarily, by the way, involves our good so brothers and sisters love the promises but love them because they are of god because they reflect god's good character and may they cause you to love god above everything and have the faith in him that evidences itself in obedience to him total obedience you are a loved child of god purchased by his own blood and if he's going to give you jesus he's certainly going to give you everything else to get you to lay hold of him so stand fast let's pray our father in heaven lord we recognize that you are a good father we recognize that your word tells us that and you say in your word that even evil parents know how to give good gifts to their children. So much more do you know how to give good gifts to your children and love us accurately in a way that glorifies you, in a way that is for our good. So, Lord, we pray that in the midst of times of struggle and tests where we might not necessarily understand why you do what you do, Lord, we pray that we would be entrusting those questions to your good, sovereign, providential character. We recognize, Lord, just as Genesis says, that you are a God who hears us, a God who is with us, a God who walks with us, and here, a God who provides for us. And Lord, we recognize that you provide for us ultimately in your Son. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us cling to Jesus, our salvation, even today. May we walk in faith with obedience, the same obedience that Abraham had by the power of the Spirit, exalting Jesus Christ as the ultimate thing and person that satisfies more so than anything else we could ever gain here on earth. In your name we pray. Amen.